to invite you to go with me to the book of Job, Job chapter 19 this morning and verse 25. Job chapter 19, beginning at verse 25, we'll read down to verse 27. I want to speak this morning about trusting God. I closed our Easter Sunday message sharing with you from the words of Christ. When he cried out from the cross, he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he expressed his complete and total trust in the Father. The Bible says that no one who ever trusted in God has ever been put to shame. And this morning I want to continue Along that thought line, because I believe God is inviting you this morning and this week to trust Him and to have confidence in Him. The words of, of, of Job are an expression of that trust. And we read here in Job 19, verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, and, and my heart faints within me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I ask that you would anoint my lips of clay to preach the word of the living God. And I ask you to anoint the hearing of this congregation, that they might hear the word and respond to its truth with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. I want to talk about trusting God. The Bible says a great deal about this. Because the way that God is pleased is by our faith. And basically, trusting God means that you choose to have faith in God. And in what he says, even when the circumstances of life or your own feelings tell you otherwise. I'll say that again. Trusting God simply means that you choose to have faith in God and in what he says. Even when your circumstances in life or your own feelings tell you otherwise. It's a decision that every man and woman can make and must make. As I mentioned in Psalm 25 and verse 3, the Bible says no one who ever trusted in the Lord will ever be put to shame. God takes it seriously when you and I trust Him. And God takes it seriously when you and I put our faith in Him. His Word and His name are on the line when you and I believe what He has spoken over our life. And yet I know that because of our own personal feelings in certain circumstances or because of circumstances that arise around us, it is sometimes difficult to choose to trust God. Maybe this morning you have walked into this church with a love for God, a commitment to serve Him, but there are areas of your life where you have yet to trust Him. Where you've really not given Him your full confidence. And I believe that any area of your life or my life where we don't trust God fully, that we are going to struggle 
We're going to struggle to enjoy the peace that He wants us to enjoy in that area of our life. The book of Habakkuk speaks of trusting in God. And the prophet writes this in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 13 through 19. He says, even if the fig tree does not blossom, and even if the fruit of the vine should fail, if I yield, if the yield of the olive fails and the fields produce no food, even if the flocks disappear from the fold and there is no cattle in the stall, he said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The Lord God is my strength and my salvation. He will make my feet like hind's feet or like deer's feet. And he will cause me to walk on high places. The prophet expresses the fact that he was going to trust God no matter what. He said, if the, if the fig tree doesn't blossom, if my hopes for the future never materialize, if the fruit of the vine should fail, if my present Uh, My present resources should dry up. If the field should produce no food, if the things that I have in reserve should disappear, I will trust in God. I will depend on God, he says. I will rejoice in the Lord, for he is my salvation and my strength. In the book of Jeremiah, we read another expression about trust in God. Here the prophet Jeremiah says, blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. How many of you trust God? Then guess what? You're blessed. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. Why? He says, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and does not fear when drought comes. And its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. The man or the woman that trusts God, Jeremiah says, will be like a tree that yields fruit all the time. And he says, you will not fear when drought comes. You know, it's a natural thing to fear when drought comes. When scarcity comes, when you hear a rumor, they're laying people off at my company. It's natural to fear. It's natural to fear. When you hear the prognosticators say this year is going to be a year of drought. Uh, and, and you've already put seed in the ground. Or you've already uh, trusted in, in the, the fact that you're going to have a harvest. It is easy. It's natural to fear. But the Bible said, blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. Who's not trusting circumstances to line up. Who's not trusting uh, just in the in the natural process uh, of life. But he's trusting in God to see him through the circumstances that may arise around him. Psalm 37 and verse 3 through 5 gives us another expression of trust in God. Here the psalmist says, trust in the Lord and do good. Live in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Him. That means trust God with your way. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. The psalmist here invites us to trust God. To trust God in our ways. And to commit our ways to the Lord. And he says, when the man trusts in God, God gives him the desires of his heart. God delights in your trust. God delights in you and I having confidence in Him, having our assurance of His ability 
and his willingness to, to help us in the hour of need. This morning we have before us the words of a man named Job, who in ancient times was a, a, a multi-millionaire. He was an extraordinarily rich man. If you do a study of the amount of livestock that he had, Job had an extraordinary amount of possessions. He was also a father of several sons and daughters. And you probably already know the story of Job. The Bible says that Satan went before God and said, You know, Job uh, is a righteous man. He serves you. But the only reason he serves you is because you are blessing him. If you were to take away those blessings from him, Job would probably curse you. And uh, Satan went and did precisely that. He robbed Job of his possessions. And in one day, Job went from being a a rich and prosperous man to the loss of all of his possessions. And then he lost his sons and his daughters. He had a mass funeral for his entire family all at one time. And then he became sick and began to suffer infirmity in his own body. He came to be a man of despair and desolation, forgotten by all, including God, it would seem. And yet when we hear him speak, Job speaks with confidence and trust in God. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the last day. Job expresses his confidence in God in spite of the trouble that he was going through. I don't know how much uh, you and I would possibly be able to endure as Job endured. But I do know this, that faith in God can endure any and every test that the devil can throw at you. And it is trust in God that will sustain you through every storm. And hasn't it been the trust that we have in God that has sustained us through this storm that we have been through in the last year? Say amen if you believe that. Job says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, first of all, I want you to understand that this passage is a prophetic passage. Job is prophesying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's prophesying that Jesus would rise from the dead. He says, I know that my, my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the last. He's speaking of the fact that the day would come when Christ would die. When he would be laid in a tomb. And where he would be presumed to be done. But that God would not be done with him. And that God would raise up Jesus from the dead and give him life. And that that same promise of resurrection, Job prophesies, will be our promise of resurrection. He says, I, I know that my Redeemer lives, that he shall stand, and that I will see him. So Job is acknowledging not only the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of his own flesh from the dead. But furthermore, we see an expression of his trust in God. And he, when he names God, he names him as the Redeemer. He says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now that word Redeemer in the Hebrew language is the word Goel. And this word uh, is often used in the Old Testament. It's a person in, in the life of the Jewish nation, a person in the family that has a grave responsibility. 
First of all, the Goel or the Redeemer was a kinsman Redeemer. We see this in the book of Ruth. This was a person who had uh, the, the family rights to raise up heirs to a deceased loved one. The Jewish culture tradition, if a man died without any children and he had a wife, then a relative of his would redeem the wife, marry her, and they would become a family and raise up children in the family name. And the Bible tells us about this story taking place in the book of Ruth. A young Moabite girl marries into a Jewish family. And they're living in Moab and then calamity comes upon the family and her father-in-law dies and her brother-in-law dies and then her husband dies. And when they have lost their husbands, uh, and Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Ruth, the daughter-in-law, Orpha, another daughter-in-law, they decide that they're going to uh, return back to their homes. And Naomi tells her daughter-in-law, you go back to your parents' house. I have no more sons to give you, and uh, I don't... I don't have any, anything to offer you, so you go on home. I'm going to return to Bethlehem in Israel. And Orpha says, all right, I'll go home. But Ruth says, no, I'm not leaving you. I have, I have become a part of this family. I've become a part of this nation. She says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And she expresses her, her desire to follow Naomi. And so they travel together to Bethlehem. Two women who are absolutely destitute. They are in, uh, in poverty. They arise back, arrive back in Bethlehem. And as was uh, the custom of the day, the welfare system of that time was that if you were in poverty, you could go out of town, go to the fields where people were harvesting grain. And the law of Moses said that if the harvester dropped any grain on the field while they were harvesting, they could not go back and pick it up. They had to leave it on the ground. And then the poor would come into the field and they would pick the grains, the stalks of grain and, and glean. And after a little while they might have enough to make uh, some bread for their home. And so Ruth goes out to the field to glean. She goes out to gather the few scraps of harvest that she can. But while she's there, there's a Goel, there's a Redeemer. His name is Boaz. And when he sees her, he says to one of his servants, he says, hey, who is that girl? They say, well, that is the Moabite Ruth. She's come here with Naomi, her mother-in-law. And, and he says to, to them, well, you know what? Uh, from now on, when you see her coming behind you, picking up the scraps and gleaning, I want you to leave handfuls of purpose for her in the field. Can you imagine Ruth's surprise when she's out on that field gleaning one stock, then another, then another, then suddenly one handful, and then another handful, and then another handful. And by the time Ruth got home that night, her basket was overflowing because she had found favor with the Redeemer. Does this story sound familiar to anybody today? Have you found the handfuls of God's grace laid out in your life? Come on, somebody. Haven't you found the handfuls of God's mercy and you have come home and said, whoa, wait a minute, what happened to me today? I'll tell you what happened. The Redeemer showed you favor and he gave you opportunities and he gave you open doors. Boaz would redeem Ruth. He would become her kinsman redeemer. He married Ruth and out of that family would arise the family of King David. This woman who was an outcast becomes the great, great grandmother of the greatest king of Israel. 
This woman who was an outsider becomes a part of the family tree of the Messiah. Why? Because of her Redeemer. You and I were like Ruth. We're outsiders. Gentiles. Outside of the promises of God. Outside of the covenants of Israel. Maybe you didn't know anything about the Bible. Or the promises of God. Or a Savior. But your Goel has come. His name is Jesus. And he has come to bring you into the family of God. And to make you a part of the family of the Almighty. Come on somebody. You and I have been redeemed. Not with perishable things such as silver and gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Now we can call God our Father. And when you and I speak to God, we don't speak to Him as a distant deity, but as our our dad, our father, who is near to us and who cares for us because of our Redeemer. Because He has brought us near to God through the blood. The next time we see a Redeemer, another time we see a Redeemer, is in the form of an alliance. The Goel was responsible, as is anyone in an alliance, to help their their family member in the time of need. And in in this case, in the book of uh, Genesis, we see Abraham. And he has a nephew named Lot. Lot is taken by the uh, king of Sodom. He's taken hostage. And they take Lot some 200 miles away. Up to the northern part, uh, the northernmost part of what today is the nation of Israel. And Abraham has now a responsibility because he's their Goel, he's a redeemer. And so he takes 300 of his men and they go out to rescue Lot. And he literally goes to battle with the kings of Sodom. Several nations against which Abraham must fight. The Bible tells us that he pursues him those 200 miles or so. All the way up to that extreme part of the nation of Israel to this day. And he delivers Lot out of his trouble. And he give, he's given victory over the kings of Sodom. And he spoils those kings. And the Bible tells us of this, uh, of this fact. That Abraham the Redeemer. The Goel goes after his nephew. He could have said, you know what? That's his problem. He could have said he got into that trouble by himself. He could have said, I told him to stay out of Sodom. But instead, he responded as his responsibility dictated to go and rescue his nephew. Do you know that you and I have a redeemer who also came to our rescue? We were in sin, in the bondage of sin and death, bound by every power of darkness and of iniquity. You and I were born slaves to sin, born in the bondage and captivity to a power so great that only Jesus could break us free from it. He didn't look down from heaven and say, you know what? That's what they deserve. Instead, he came down to earth and he became our redeemer. And he went to the cross in order that he might deliver you out of the power of the devil. And if you've been set free, shout amen and give God thanks. Because Jesus, Jesus didn't chase down the enemy 200 miles. He chased him down to to the very pit of hell. And the Bible said that he took from him the keys of death, hell. And the grave, come on somebody, you are free today because you have a redeemer. And the Bible says that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You don't have to go back to bondage. You don't have to go back to that, to that place and to that yoke. You've been set free 
by the power of the Almighty God. And finally, I'll mention the third responsibility of a Goel, of a Redeemer. We find that in the book of Numbers. And the Bible says there, if anyone has in his hand a deadly object and he strikes and kills another, he is a murderer. And the murderer must surely be put to death. Look at the next verse. It says, and the avenger of blood, that's the Goel, the Redeemer, is to put the murderer to death. And when he finds him, he will kill him. Now let me just explain to you that this is the ancient law of God. It's no longer in effect today. So don't go chasing after anybody. But the Goel in the Bible times was given the privilege of going and avenging the death of his relative. In other words, if somebody killed your cousin and, and you were related, you had, the, you had the right to go and to arrest them and bring them to justice. And this is, uh, of course, no longer practiced in our day. But in that day, that was the, the legal order. Do you realize that that was uh, meant as by God as an incentive or a disincentive against murder? Because you understood that if you killed somebody, you're going to have to deal with their whole family. And any one of them would have the legal right to justify the death of their, of their loved one by avenging their blood. This was the responsibility of the avenger. But you and I also have an avenger. Because you and I had an enemy. And this enemy was sin and death. He came into the garden. He deceived Adam and Eve. And he put us all under the yoke of sin and death. And this enemy has been striking down and destroying souls in the multitudes. For generations, men and women have been destroyed by the power of sin and death. There may be a remedy for everything in our day, but there's still no remedy for death. There is still no solution for the power of death. And so our avenger came and he, he sought out death till he got it to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died for your sins. And by death itself, he killed death and all of its power. So that the Bible says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? And by death itself, Jesus canceled the power of death and of sin. So that you and I have not only been avenged, but we have been delivered from the power of death and of sin. Somebody ought to give God praise today. Because death is no longer your enemy. The Bible assures us that if you and I die in Christ, we live eternally. And that if you and I die in Christ, we will live again physically at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Job is talking about when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. I have a Redeemer. I have a kinsman who has brought me into the family of God. He's saying, I have a defender to stand up against me, against my enemy and my strong foe. And I have an avenger who has conquered the very power of death and of sin. Now there are a couple expressions here in Job's uh, words that I want you and I to consider. First of all, Job says, he is my redeemer. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. 
Is Jesus Christ your Redeemer? Are you able this morning to speak of God in personal terms? When you talk about God, can you speak of Him as my God? As my Father? As my Redeemer? You see, it's possible to be in church and not be in God. It's possible to know all about religion and not know God personally. It's possible to walk next to people who know God and know God through their experience, but never have known God for yourself. This was the problem with the patriarch Jacob. In the Old Testament, the Bible said the Lord came to him and the Lord said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He was not yet the God of Jacob. He was not yet Jacob's personal redeemer. Jacob would walk with God and and soon would say to the Lord, you are my God. That's why when we talk about the patriarchs, we say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because the day finally came when Jacob came to know God personally. When Jacob came to know the redeemer for himself. And that is the most important question you and I could deal with this morning. Is God yours? Have you made a personal commitment of your life to Him? Can you speak of Him as your Savior or your Redeemer? If not, this morning you have an invitation from God to make Jesus the Lord of your life. If you don't know God personally, you say, Pastor, how can anybody know God personally? Well, the only way that's possible is if God wants to be known. And friend, He wants you to know Him. He wants you to experience His love and His forgiveness and His grace. And today He invites you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And when you do that, He'll become your Redeemer. He'll become your Savior. You will be able to say, He's my God. I know Him. I know His voice. I know what He talks. What he, I know how He sounds. I know how it feels to be in His presence. He wants you to have that very vivid and lively experience with Him. You say, Pastor, I think, I think I, I have, I'm not good enough for that. I don't have enough education for that. I haven't had enough time in church for that. Friend, it doesn't, it doesn't matter about any of that. You can know God for yourself today by simply putting your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you will confess your sin to God, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. That's all that God is waiting for. He's waiting for you and I to confess our sin to Him. And in that moment of confession and repentance, when you say, Father, I believe that Jesus died on the cross, and I believe that He was raised from the dead, that moment you become an adopted son of God. You become a part of the family of God, and your life will never be the same again. I pray this morning that you will not leave this church without being able to say, He's my God. He's my Redeemer. I know Him personally. Now there's another expression here that Job uses, and he says, I know. Everybody say, I know. Job makes the the statement with confidence. I know that my Redeemer liveth. He's speaking of a fact. As far as Job is concerned, God is alive and it's a fact. He doesn't say, I think he lives. He doesn't say, I hope he lives. 
He doesn't say, maybe he lives. He says, I know. He has an absolute confidence in God. An absolute confidence in the fact that God is alive. Do you have that confidence this morning? Are you able to say, I know? Or when someone asks you, are you going to heaven when you die? You say, I think so. No, you have to know. The Bible said these things have been done so that we may know that we are children of God. God doesn't want you walking around with a hope so, maybe so, faith. He wants you to know. To have that assurance in your heart. That you are walking with God and that, and that you are in fellowship with Him. That you are, that you are saved by His grace. And that God is going to help you this week. That God is going to help you today. That whatever challenge you're facing, you can say, I know that God is going to help me. I know that I'm going to, I'm going to experience God's help in my life. You say, Pastor, how can I have that? How can somebody have that I know assurance? Well, George Mueller said this, and I think uh, it's an important quote for us to think about this morning. The, the great missionary, George Mueller, he said this, The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. He said, and the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. What is George Mueller saying? He's saying, when you and I start Becoming anxious and worried about our circumstances, about our trouble, about our trials. He says, when you and I begin to be anxious, faith walks out the door. And your I know so becomes a maybe so, a hope so, a think so. There are a lot of people walking around with a hope so faith. Not because God is not God, but because they have been allowing anxiety and worry To govern their thoughts and their emotions and their feelings and their life. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning you are allowing all of those things that you can't control. To control how you feel and how you think. And all of that is robbing you of peace. And you can't say I know because you are allowing doubt and unbelief to crowd your faith. But Mueller said true faith is the end of anxiety. So how do you how do you get to a place where you can say I know? You get there by trusting God. You get there by saying God, here's all that I'm worried about. Here's what I'm fearing, here's what I'm doubting, here's what I am striving with and you give it to God. And when you give it to God, peace comes. An assurance comes into your heart that lets you know God's got it. Have you ever had that experience? If you're a believer walking with God, I trust you've had that experience where you have been dealing with something and you're struggling and you're striving and you're pushing and pulling and how and and what am I going to do and on and on and on. And finally, you just finally let it go and you give it to God. And the moment you do that, peace comes. And with that peace, an assurance comes. And you say, I know God's going to do this. I know God's in control of this. 
If you look at the book of Job, you see the strivings of Job. He's struggling with all of this. Why am I going through this? I was a good man. I was a righteous man. I was, I was faithful to God. I, I offered him sacrifices. But in all of that striving, there's dis, disunity in his soul. But then he comes to that place where he just rests his whole being upon God. And now he says, I know. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that God is in control of this situation. The Bible says that you and I are to bring all of our supplication, all of our needs to God. He says, make your request known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all knowledge will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's where the knowing begins. The knowing begins with trusting. I know it sounds, it sounds con- counterintuitive, and I know that it doesn't seem like it makes sense, but that's how spiritual things work. You see, as human beings, we want to know about the thing. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know what's the outcome going to be. God doesn't care about you knowing that. He cares about you knowing Him. And when you know Him, you will know that He's in control of the thing and the circumstance and the trouble and the trial. Come on, somebody. It begins when you trust Him. How how easy it is to get into striving. What does the Bible say? Stop striving. Be still and know that I am God. That knowing, that inner assurance comes when you and I trust Him. That's why Job can say it. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job doesn't have a New Testament. He can't read the the end of the Gospels to read of the resurrection of Jesus. How does he know? Because he has trusted in God. And trust in God opens a door to knowledge that is out of this world. Trust in God opens a door to an assurance that is not given to you by a bank or a federal government but it's given to you by the Almighty God. Now notice the things he says. What does he know? First of all, he knows that his Redeemer lives. Now we're talking about the resurrection here. We're talking about a lot of theological things. But I'm, let me just boil it down to a formula for you this morning. Job knew that God was in charge. Come on, if God is alive, then he's in charge. Say amen, somebody. Job knew my Redeemer lives. You got to know that when you pray, you're not praying to a dead God. Say amen, somebody. You're not praying to a God made of wood or stone or clay, the idea or imagination of a man's mind. You are praying to the living God, the creator of the universe. You are praying to the God of heaven, the Lord of glory, the King eternal. You are praying to the Father of light. 
And if he's alive, then he's in charge. Trusting God comes with the assurance that God is in control. You know, it's not too hard to trust God when we think we know what God's going to do. If I ask God for this, I'm going to trust him for this. He's going to give me exactly what I want. And I'm going to be happy. Trusting God means he's in charge. And if he chooses to do it in a way that I did not approve, I trust him. I got very few amens right there. No, pastor, I want him to do it my way. Then you're not trusting God, you're trusting your way. Trusting God means I trust him. He's in charge. He's going to do it his way. And his way is better than my way. Because he said, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. Why? Because my ways are high above your ways. And my thoughts are high above your thoughts. Isaac, I can't do it your way. Because your way is too low. Your way is too slow. Your way is too small. I've got to do it my way. Because my way is best. My way is great. My way will bring me glory. And you good. Come on somebody. God is inviting you today. To have that assurance that he's in charge. He's in control. And so long as I'll just submit to his charge. I want to see him at work. Now that's the second thing that Job says here. That's the second part of this formula. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. What else does he know? He will take his stand. Job says, I know God is in charge and I know that God will work on my behalf. He will take his stand. He's going to do what he has to do. Listen, this is such an incredible expression on on the part of Job. For him to understand, God will take his stand. He's saying, God's going to do something about this. Because I know him. Because he's good, because I have seen his character, I know that God will not leave me in the dust. And God will not leave me in defeat. He will take his stand. Come on, I don't know who I'm preaching to this morning. But maybe you feel like you've been left in the dust. Like you've been ruined. Like everything has gone against you. You've lost money. You've lost time. But God will take his stand. And God will do for you what no other can do. Come on, you have to trust God to work on your behalf. Do you trust Him to do that? Do you trust Him to do that? And you know, usually, you know, when He starts working, is what I've noticed in my own life, God starts working when I stop. When I stop trying to do it my way, And make things happen my way. And I just get hands off. God says, all right, Isaac, now we can work. I'll do this. What confidence Job expresses. He's not on the mountaintop. He's in the pit. He's at the bottom. But he's saying, God is not going to leave me here. God is going to take his stand. And here's what Job is saying. Because if you understand the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. You understand this. The Bible said that we died with him. That means we died with Jesus on the cross. We were buried with him. When he was buried in the, in the tomb, the believer was buried with him. And when he was raised up, when he took his stand, guess what? You took his stand. You took your stand with him. Come on, somebody. That's what Job is saying. God is going to work on my behalf. And when he stands up, guess what? I'm standing up too. If he comes up victorious, I will be victorious too. God will have his victory. And that victory will be my victory. He's going to take his stand. And then the third part of the formula. He says, I will see God. I know that I'm going to see God. Just let that sink in for a minute. I know that I'm going to see God. Now Job, of course, he's talking again about the resurrection. And that's why that's such a profound thought. How can a man know what is in the future. But Job, because he's trusted God, he has that inner knowledge now, that inner assurance. He says, I'm going to see God. I don't know about you, but I want to see God. Anybody in here have plans to see God? Come on, that's a weak amen, church. Anybody in here have plans to see God? Say, Pastor, I don't want to see God. I do. He says, I want to see God. I have, a, I have an expectation. I have a hope. I want to see Jesus. I'm going to see my Savior. I'm going to see my Redeemer. I'm not going to live my life preaching Christ and talking about Christ and introducing men to Christ and then never get to meet Jesus. I know that I will see God. I'm going to see Jesus. What a glorious encounter you and I have in our future. You know, I always wanted to meet Billy Graham. Never got to meet Billy Graham. I always wanted to meet Ronald Reagan. Never met Ronald Reagan. I always wanted to meet several other people. and never had the opportunity to meet them. But I know one thing. I will see Jesus. I said I will see Jesus. But this is part of the formula. He's not just talking about the future. He's saying, I'm going to see God in my circumstances right now. I'm going to see God work. I'm going to see God move. I'm going to watch God operate. Aren't you just excited today? You have a God that you can literally watch Him work. Come on, some of you are watching God work right now. And you're sitting in a house that you don't know how you got in that house. And you're saying, I don't know how I got into this house. But you just watch God work. You've been praying for a house. You've been asking for a house. And then you just watch God work. And there you are, sitting in that couch, sitting at that dinner table. And you're just looking and saying, I'm seeing God at work in my life. 
Come on, some of you have a, a rebellious teenager. A son or daughter has gone away from the Lord, but then suddenly they call you and say, you know what, I want to come with, to church with you on Easter Sunday. And you're just watching God. You're saying, wait a minute, who am I talking to? What child is this? Oh, that's my kid. The kid I've been praying for. The kid I've been believing for. I will see God manifested in their life, working in their life, working in that heart. I see God. I know that He lives. I know He's in charge. And I know that He's going to take His stand. I know that He's not going to sit back and just let this happen. I know He's going to defend me. And I know that I'm going to watch Him work. And I'm going to see His hand. All of that comes when you trust Him. It comes when you say with, this, with the prophet, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though the field doesn't yield fruit, though the stalks are gone from the stall, I will trust in God. Would you stand with me this morning? And I want to invite anybody to this altar this morning who said, Pastor Isaac, there's some areas of my life that I want to entrust to God this morning. Some challenges I'm facing, some needs that I'm experiencing, and I just want to trust God with it because I want to have that assurance. And that assurance is so beautiful. But I want to encourage you, if you haven't received an assurance that God's in control of your circumstance, keep bringing it back to Him. Just keep bringing it back to Him. Bring it to Him this morning. And tomorrow morning, bring it back to Him. And sooner or later, that assurance will come. And you'll just know. God's got it. Until that moment of assurance comes, you just keep coming back to Him. Keep bringing it to Him. Don't feed your anxiety. Just bring it back to Christ. So there's something you need to entrust to God this morning. I want to invite you to come into this altar. And let's do that this morning. Would you come? If you want to stay in your seat, that's fine. But if you need to come, come. It's a moment of invitation. God is inviting you to just let it go. You're not letting it go to chance. You're not letting it go to, to some, someone's capricious intent. You're letting it into the hands of the Almighty God. A Father who loves you, who cares for you, who can be trusted. God is trustworthy. He's proven it to you. And he'll prove it still. Oh, to trust in God. Father, we come this morning to lay at your feet. Fear and anxiety and worry. We lay at your feet a doctor's diagnosis. We lay at your feet the incurable cancer. We lay at your feet the abuse of yesterday. 
the sorrow of a lost loved one. We trust you to bring us through the storm. I pray that assurance would come. I pray that inner knowing would come to the heart of the believer this morning. Your Redeemer's alive. And He will. He will take His stand. And when God makes His move, you will know that you have seen the hand of the Lord.